Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alma Harrell's new drama, Honey Boy. Starring Shia LaBeouf in a story inspired by his own real-life childhood, the film follows a young actor into early adulthood as he navigates a difficult relationship with his father and struggles to deal with his mental health. Honey Boy marks Ms. Harrell's feature film directorial debut. Her other credits include the documentary features Bombay Beach and Love True and various commercials. She was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Commercials for her work on the 2017 Procter & Gamble spot, Love Over Bias. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Harrell spoke with director Boaz Yakim about filming Honey Boy. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hey, thanks everybody coming so late. Coming out. Surviving. I'm drinking like matcha shots here to stay up. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you all for coming. Um, my name is Boaz. This is Alma. And uh, we'll talk a little bit and then turn it over for some questions uh, at the end. So two things before we start. One thing. First thing, full disclosure. I consider myself extremely fortunate to have been married to this incredible woman for 10 years. <laughs> And though that's no longer the case, um, I consider myself equally lucky to be able to say that she's my best friend and family for life, and I was incredibly moved that she asked me to do this Q&A, and I'm really pleased to be doing it. Um, Thank you. Second thing, uh, Honey Boy, I guess, posted the highest opening weekend per screen average of any film to open this year so far. So that's super exciting. And I say this only to ameliorate what I'm sure is your terrible guilt that you're carrying for uh, doing this for free instead of paying for independent (laughs) cinema at the movies. Um, uh, But yeah, so we'll start. Um, So Alma, this is a wonderful and accomplished and beautiful first film. Um, Obviously, there was a road that you took to get to the place where you were able to make this thing. So tell us a little bit about the road that you took to get to being a first-time featured director. You've made a few docs, but tell us a little bit about the things that were important to you in terms of getting to this space. Wow. Um, It's it's been such a long road. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know where to start, so maybe I'll maybe I won't go all the way to the back because it seems like such a such a long road, but I I've, I've definitely didn't get here in any traditional way, I guess. Um, I didn't go to film school. Um, and I, uh, you know, sort of found my way into this by just um, on my own, uh, filming things, doing video art, uh, being a little bit in front of the camera. I think I worked at every possible job um, from, you know, being assistant producer to, you know, in post rooms and editors and an editor. And, um, at some point I 
really started doing, um, you know, I did photography, I did a lot of video art, and I did started to do music videos and um, work also as, um, I guess, what you call in Israel, where I'm from at the time, uh, was referred to as a VJ, which is like a video jockey. I guess when we met, I was doing that, which was uh, consisted of recording um, a lot of my own little video art and then mixing it live on stages with musicians um, together with some live camera and like uh, films I would steal from all sorts of other filmmakers <laughs> and really perform, I guess, video, do video performance. And uh, then that led to music videos. And uh, at some point when I was very frustrated with the development of my music video career, uh, when I was already living in Los Angeles, I, um, you know, kind of felt very stuck. I tried to sustain myself financially and to do commercials and transition into that, and that didn't happen. And when a lot of circumstances came together, both of personal and professional frustrations, I went out and... Um, did a film that you produced with me, which was called Bombay Beach. Um, and it was a documentary film that I shot in the desert with a small little camera and two love mics. And that film kind of, I think, changed my life, you know, making that first documentary. And it was a film, you know, it was a film. It had dance in it, it had documentary in it, it had moments in it that were definitely outside of the genre and really helped me find my voice, I guess, as a filmmaker. And that was in 2011. And that film ended up in the hands of Shia LaBeouf uh, when um, he got into Amoeba Records to, buy, to look for a DVD about uh, Bob Dylan. And because this uh, film had music by Bob Dylan and some really tired employee at uh, Amoeba Records that was probably overworked, uh, put it in the wrong section, and it somehow ended up in uh, the Bob Dylan section. Um, and Shia came in, uh, took it, watched it twice that night, and then emailed me to my website. And I remember getting that email, by, by the way, and you were telling me that's probably not him. If it was him, he would have he would have emailed you through an agent or something. And I was like, no, I, th I think it's him. And I emailed him back, and we went and gotten uh, dinner together. We had a dinner together and kind of started talking and connecting. And two weeks later, we did a music video for Sigur Ross. So that was, uh, you know, sort of how it all started, I guess, to mm -hmm. go into uh, the more, you know, um, just full-length feature films. Well, to, to touch on something that you kind of mentioned is that you didn't have a, not that there is a traditional one, but certainly not a traditional background in directing and so on. And one of the discussions that we often used to have was, you know, you had films that you loved, you had influences that you were interested in, but you resist, like, you didn't want to become too stuck on things that had been done before. Like, you were always really trying to make a balance between knowing what was done and where you were coming from, but wanting, and you can really see it in this film, that it has an original perspective, an original eye to it. Talk a little about that feeling or that philosophy that you had. Wow, that's such an interesting question. Um, you know me so well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that I, I was, I have this like, it's kind of a rebellious, childlike, 
probably I have to grow up out of it at some point, but it's it's like this real aversion of of committing to even saying something is is really that dear to me out of out of the fear of of uh, becoming a fan to the point that it would influence me. And of and of course, I'm influenced by so many things, but I I just really don't like the constrictions of genres, and I also feel like my work in film has kind of come a lot of it from actually what I've been through in therapy, you know, like kind of going into therapy and, and doing role play in therapy, which was my, like, I do, I do think cinema in many ways saved my life and being creative and finding a creative voice saved my life. And, and that creativity has always been a way for me to deal with a lot of things that happened to me in my childhood or traumatic things or all sorts of stuff that led to a range of behaviors from addiction to self-harm to a lot of things like that. And I think that when I look at films, a lot of times there's something about them that is either overly planned out and feels like a really realized vision, but that, that doesn't have any life to it often. Um, or things that have a lot of life to, to them, um, but often, you know, and, and, and obviously I have so many influences like that, but that don't feel like they're mine, I guess, or I can't say, oh, this is the film I would have wanted to make. So, yeah, there's a kind of like a fear of, of being, you know, um, being put into a box or, or belonging to certain things and wanting to just work outside of genres and try to bring in things like dance into documentary or bringing therapy into film and just mixing up the things that, that have, you know, that, that maybe don't belong together and make them live in, in one place. Well, one of the things that I'm most impressed with in a way is that you know a lot of people who direct videos first or come from Alma actually has a, a, an extensive editing background as well which you didn't touch on but which you can see actualized by the amazing editing in the film which she was very much involved in every step of the way but a lot of people who come from those other mediums don't understand how to work with actors right. now what I find so impressive about this film is that the tone of the acting in it is very tricky. I know, it, it, I, I really, as someone who's done, like, it's all grounded in real emotion and in truth, but it's just a little theatrical. It's just a little bit cinematic. And all the actors that you work with came from such different backgrounds. I mean, you have Shia, you had Lucas Hedges, you had a 12-year-old kid from London, you had Byron, who comes from comedy. How was Twigs, it who comes from music? Yeah, how is it that you were able or like what was your approach to getting everyone to be in the same movie? Because that was you, you know? I, and and I've seen Lucas and other films. So what was your approach in terms of that having your background? Um Yeah, I I mean I really had to first of all learn and I and it was it was something that as I was doing it, I was figuring out, first of all, how different are the needs of each actor to, to get a performance from them, right? And that has to do with um, understanding their needs as opposed to really imposing your ideas on, on what, the, what, what is the way to do it. Um, that was, for me, because I actually come from no expectations as to like how to do things or what's the right thing to do things, 
that freedom actually really helped me, I think, because it really allowed me to allow, it allowed me to give each actor uh, what they needed without thinking, oh, this is the right way to do it, and what you're doing is actually wrong. Um, I also worked on this film with an incredible woman whose name is Kim Gillingham, um, who is, I um, hope I'm pronouncing her last name right, um, and she's a Jungian, actually, scholar that, that very much works with uh, both actors and directors through their dreams. This um, your second documentary, Love True? No, this is on this. Like on my oh, second, on yeah, on my second documentary, I worked with psychodrama, which was like actually similar in many ways to what we did here. Um, but this one was just somebody that I worked with, but also Lucas worked with her, uh, Twigs worked with her, Byron worked with her, and what what I tried to do with each one of the actors is to tap into what is it that was extremely personal about this role for them. And what is it that they thought, even in the script, didn't feel right? And and allow for those changes. So um, finding that like thing that you said, which was like extremely kind of grounded in truth and, and authentic, uh, was something that came from from the actors. So Byron Bowers, for an example, who's like you said, comes from the background of comic and uh, as a comic and was playing. Lucas Hedges' uh, roommate. His character was completely different when, you know, when we auditioned him, he was uh, named differently. It was somebody that was religious, that was playing guitar. Um, and we kind of worked on this with him and Kim and to rewrite everything and actually make it about his cousin who actual, actually was in prison at the time. And the fact that he saw what's privileged about this situation. Um, so that was, that was something that I kind of tried to do with everybody to bring a little bit of their truth as much as I could into the script. And Shia was extremely open and supportive to that. And that's really how he works too. So he was, he was very into it. Um, in terms of like, shaping some of the performances later on in the edit, which I feel like we did a lot. I think that was a big part of also tonally finding some of the um, moments that made them all live together in the same world. I think that the idea was actually to give as much freedom as possible on set and have as many versions of these things and sometimes have 10, 12 takes that each one of them is different. And then make decisions in the edit that that made the world more cohesive. So it was a combination of like you know actually giving as much freedom as you can to people to have ownership and agency, and then um, and then after that like you know kind of shape it and find a way to in the edit make that world work. I, I think it's fascinating because like I, there's some people, myself included, a lot of the time where you have a certain goal in mind. And you try and build everything up to that goal. And Alma, as, as I've observed, is very process-oriented. And yet, somehow, by the time she's finished with every piece she does, it feels more like Alma than anything else anyone does, except for a few people feels like them. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's, uh, that's a really interesting thing um, that you do. Uh, another thing I, I would love to find out about like your feeling about the film is that when Shia approached you with the script, when he talked to you about it, what was it about doing it that you felt from reading it or even from talking to him about it that was like, 
the most you in it. Like, so that, that when, you, when you listened to him or when you read the script that you went, this is what I'm going to try and connect to in this. Yeah, I mean, this Shia was um, court-ordered, and as you could see in the film, to go to um, a mental health facility slash rehab, and um, and he got sober over there. But what he what really happened that was uh, meaningful, I think, even more, is that he got diagnosed with PTSD, which explained a lot of the behaviors that he was having and a lot of the experiences that he still struggles with every day. I think, and. Um, when I read it, though, and he sent it to me because he was instructed to kind of write it as part of the role play that he was doing and exposure therapy, and when he sent it to me, I felt like there was such a... There was a few things, right? I mean, first of all, there was just the the dialogue, which I was so struck by between him and the father in the first few drafts, which was just James and the little boy in the room and hardly left the room. Um, and older Otis wasn't there yet. But really some of the best moments in the film that I consider the heart of the film were already there. Um, and the dialogue was just so, so raw and painful and full of love and things that don't necessarily always live together but what it was really the most striking thing about it for me was that it, they never said they hardly ever said what they're talking about until you know a few moments and and most of the time they would be talking about pies and clowns and big brothers and cars and and what's under the hood of a car but underneath it there was always this like very very urgent um you know, narrative of like masculinity and, and, and failure and, you know, pain and all of, all of these things. And it, they were just communicated all the time in such a funny way sometimes. Um, and then the other thing that struck me the most and really is the reason that I made this film is that I'm also a child of an alcoholic. Uh, my father, as you well know, is somebody that I can start uh, crying in two minutes if I talk about him. Um, because I love him so much and because he's definitely one of the reasons I, I, I wrote him today that it, I, 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 this film is for him because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't love alcoholics and I wouldn't love films. Um, he's an alcoholic till this day and a drinking one. And he's the one that really took me to the movies. You know, whenever my mom and him would separate and he wasn't allowed in the house, we would meet in the movies and go to see movies and he till this day watches movies and sends me his thoughts about every movie that he watches. Um, so yeah, I thought like I really wanted to make a film from the perspective of a child of an addict and a child of an alcoholic or really any daddy, any person who has daddy issues, but just like this idea of how your wires are so crossed as a kid and your ideas of love are so entangled with ideas of like pain and guilt and shame and, and pity and, 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 you know, being a caretaker of somebody who's never really found a way to function in the world in like a mature way. And I thought that script did that, you know? And I think, I think that that, what I think what's really connecting, other than all the beautiful things that are in the film, what's really connecting with people, I, I think, is the fact that you are so unjudgmental in how you, you're clear-eyed about how you deal and look at painful things, but you're not very judgmental about them. Yeah. And I think it gives people a lot of room to feel for the characters and for the film. 
Something I noticed today, which, I mean, I've seen the film a few times. A lot but, of times. Yeah, but... What, the, the, very different variations of yeah, it as we edited But it. what really struck me today that I think a lot of, especially maybe filmmakers that aren't just starting, but like, did, is your confidence in silence, mm. right? Like, the film really has a... Today, the, the counterpoint between the loud moments, Shia's kind of intensity... And then these just long observational moments where there's, like, is that something that you planned out was to create that contrast? Because um, I, I, a lot of people would just be nervous not to fill it up with something. And, and I, wow. I, I was really in admiration of that watching it today. We're, we're, uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, something that I, I think I've done in all of my documentaries, too. But I definitely think it wasn't necessarily in the script. You know, but that was just like a lot of the more visual stuff or, you know, the, the silent things and the movement and a lot of the things that I brought into this um, came from my faith in silence, <laughs> even though I never shut up, um, as you well know. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think like my faith in silence, my faith in music, uh, my faith in movement and... Um, and my faith in the present moment, which is often really disrupted by conversation. And just being able to capture these moments where, you know, the ego goes away and the self arises, or there's something that's a little more um, like introspective um, that comes from being in silence, you know, and I feel like I've I've definitely learned some of the most important things I've learned about the secrets of life from being silent and not from talking, and and you really and, see it in the movie. And I and I try yeah I try to capture that. I, there's this it's like all the violence is always dialogue, all the frustration and all the violence and the tensions dialogue and all the healing is always done in, in silence. Interesting. Yeah, there's there's some. Yeah, there's. It's. I guess it's true. I do. I do. I do see that. I do. I know what you mean. And I think like it's. It's always like kind of a matter of, of finding the balance, right? Both in life and in film, I guess, which I strive for between, you know, being able to communicate your thoughts, wanting to communicate, to communicate, wanting to capture exactly what you feel about something, and then um, being able to just stop and understand that that part of your brain is not going to solve everything and that actually you have to go into somewhere else inside of you to really experience certain things. So I try to kind of, I guess, externalize that too. And um, yeah, and also like there's this um, thing about this film that was meditative, which is this, this thing about like breathing in pain you know, I mean, I mean, like a lot of meditation, which I don't practice regularly, wish I did, but when I do, I value it very much. And it's like this breathing in and out thing, which you can do and really kind of notice things. And this film was really, a lot of it was about breathing pain in and breathing out love, you know? And, and it, it's like, it was just an incredible amount of pain, you know, to take in, to make it. And then everybody was just kept taking it in and kept putting out love. I mean, everybody on the set and everybody and every actor and everybody that I think worked on this. And that, that I think, happens in silence. <laughs> um, I'm going to open it up to some questions in a second. I'm just going to fanboy one, one thing, which is, <laughs> aside from 
being a brilliant director, Alma also has started a fantastic um, social-minded, uh, I guess, initiative it would be called a few years ago, she, in, in a remarkably short amount of time, it seems. She started an initiative to basically break the glass ceiling for women in advertising and commercials called Free the Bid, and it has since grown into an initiative called Free the Work, where it's increased and helped women gain access uh, in the entertainment industry in places that it hadn't been before. Do you want to just say a little word or two about that um, as well? Yeah, it's amazing guess, what she's been doing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Free the Work, I mean, Free the Bid is something that I started in the advertising world out of a lot of frustration of not being able to uh, get work myself, but also seeing a lot of the women that I know not getting to, you know, to work and to even be considered. And um, I think that what Free the Work is doing is that it um, we 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 exist in like 20 countries around the world. We have ambassadors everywhere. And what Free the Work is is like kind of a an IMDb Pro meets Spotify, I guess, database that is really for women and underrepresented creators, like people of color and trans-identifying, non-binary directors, editors, writers. Uh, colorists. So it's really, it's a tool for everybody that keeps complaining that they don't know where to find, how to diversify and all of these words, uh, which, you know, really come down to, come down to representation and giving opportunity to new stories to be told. Um, there's kind of a lot of goodwill and a lot of initiatives, but you keep hearing all the time, oh, all the women are already working because, you know, there's five, six, seven women that are making films or ten women that people know about and they think that if they're making films, then that's it. And so we have, you know, um, built something that people can really use to discover talent that they're missing out on. And uh, and it has been having a really big effect on, on hiring practices and on people crewing um, I use it all the time myself and discover talent through it. So thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, how long ago did you start it? So I started in 2016. It was called Free the Bid then. Yeah, Free it's amazing. The Three just years then. Yeah, yeah, and like our founding partners are Amazon Studios, which are now implementing 300 accounts into all of the productions, um, P&G, uh, Facebook, AT&T, Ford. It's just like very, very, um, you know, big, um, I guess, brands or um, studios that are doing a lot of work and are giving work to a lot of people and wanted to make sure that they hire uh, talent and that that feeling of like that excuse of not finding talent was really in the way and this is what this is a solution for. Fantastic. So I'll, I'll open it up to some questions. I, have, I guess it's a podcast, so I'm going to repeat your questions after you say them. Yeah. Yes, sir? So in short, the question was, how did you develop, how did Alma develop her visual style and um, work with the cinematography and, and creating low light and naturalistic effects to, to bring out the story? How, how did you do that? How did you approach so that? So I, I worked on this film with an extraordinary cinematographer named Natasha Breyer, who I very much was a fan of for years for her work on the rover and Neon Demon and just felt like she can really create very dramatic uh, lighting but also very low light lighting um, and naturalistic. She just seems like to be one of those people that can do a lot of different things and isn't like stuck on, on a style. Um, I 
asked her to, you know, she watched my films like Bombay Beach and Love True, which are my first two films, which I was the cinematographer on. Both of them were shot with no lighting uh, ever. I've never used any light on both of them. And I wanted to have them inform some of the work that I've done on this in terms of the naturalistic approach and the lack of, you know, um, I guess like the more realistic part of it, but also the handheld work that I've been doing on them. And at the same time, bring in her ability to, to dramatize some of these scenes and actually have beautiful lighting in the motel and, you know, create the, the canvas of like this Hollywood cinematic world that's contrasting all the time with the, you know, real story of, of Otis that couldn't be more different than the worlds he gets to play in. So she, worked with me to just do like a full breakdown, you know, of the whole film scene by scene and kind of understand what would be the the tone in each one of them. Uh, we didn't storyboard anything other than the very big, you know, scenes that involved visual effects, like the opening shot, which we did in one take. And we really shot this whole film in 19 days. So it was, it was grueling as you as you can imagine but the really the the most brilliant thing that she's done that allowed for some of the more dramatic stuff feel so kind of un, like it was you know not really a, a, a bit seamless and like kind of like the lighting is always coming from the room was that she um had a few setups of lighting in the room and she operated them live so we would, instead of lighting, because I wanted to have so much improvisation and for Shia and the actors to move around the room and Otis, um, I, Noah, Jupe, I, what we did is instead of lighting it for 360 and creating something that maybe would be flat after a while, she would actually operate it in real time with like Wi-Fi and iPads and um, as they would move around the room, she would just respond to them and, you know, lower one thing and lift another thing and use the light from the bathroom or the TV or the lamp by the bed and really constantly, you know, um, DJ these lights, you know. Um, and that, that really allowed for a lot of freedom, both for the actors and for, for me, you know, to operate in the room because I, I also operated a lot, um, especially in the motel. So yeah, that's that's probably was uh, how we did it. the The question is, how did since Lucas and Noah were playing the same character at different ages, but they're never in a scene together, how did you work on them to create a kind of a, a whole character, and what what order did you shoot them in, and did did that yeah. matter? We actually shot Lucas first um, because of schedule needs, because he was going to do another film right after. Uh, the reason this has been such a holistic, I think, like character, even and and the way it worked was that they both were extremely committed and came two months earlier, and we had an, a, a huge amount of we put a lot amount of work into building this character of Otis together prior to it. Um, both of them, first of all, spent a lot of time with Shia. Um, Lucas was wearing Shia's clothes pretty much from the time he came to LA. Noah and his mother were living in Shia's house and Shia was living in a motel getting ready to play his father. But, um, Lucas and Shia, um, I'm sorry, Lucas and Noah, the work that I've done with them came a lot from the physicality of the character. And again, like trying to find things that really meant something to them. So, you know, 
we want Noah had at the time this thing that he used to do since he was a kid, which putting these two fingers in his mouth, uh, which is, by the way, the same two fingers that Shia lost in a car accident um, in real life. And so just like finding out things like that and then having him work on starting to implement that into scenes and then working with Lucas to also do that and finding all sorts of positions with their hands and how they sit that they both would practice together. Um, sending both of them to the same uh, voice uh, speech coach, you say, like voice coach, and um, to work on their dialect and actually develop some kind of, a, you know, a timeline for their dialect because watching together a lot of interviews of Shia since he was a little kid to how he grew up and how his speech was uh, influenced by the company that he kept and uh, who he got, you know, who, who he was hanging out with and what characters he's he's played. So really developing all of those things together with Lucas and Noah, and that was that was a that was actually one of my favorite things to do because they both connected and loved working together and spent a lot of time together, and um, and even though they never had a scene together, they re really worked together towards this film. A couple more questions. And how did your documentary work affect your approach to your feature? Um, I guess, I mean, other than the fact that, of course, there's um, a real need to tell that I have, I guess, to tell other people's stories that are somewhat a bit of outsiders. And even Shia, somebody that isn't, you know, living in Bombay Beach or at the edges of society, I think that he we can probably all agree that he is an outsider very much in how he behaves um, and, and, you know, the, the weight that his um, ability to fit in carries. So just this passion to tell somebody's story is, is always the source, I guess, for what I do. But um, more than every, anything, I think that it was almost very organic continuation of what we did in Love True which is the documentary film that I made before this. And that film um, had three stories, and it had people approach, um, you know, bring to life their kind of, uh, I guess, traumas or memories um, and play, play them with somebody that played their younger selves and interact with them. And those were, you know, people that weren't actors, but they stepped into their memories and recreated them. And by that, had a therapeutic experience. And we had a therapist even on set uh, to, for some of these stories. Um, and in a way, when you look at what Chaya did here, which is to step into a memory of his own, you know, traumatic childhood and play with somebody that plays his younger self, it's a very similar exercise in many ways. So that was definitely something that informed it. The other thing that I think was the most maybe um, thing that I've understood has come from my documentary filmmaking was in the editing room, which is, you know, when you're an, a documentary filmmaker, you can be shooting for, for four years, you know, you could like end up with 400 hours on your table that have, and there's no script and you just have to find the film. And people always say that there's many films in, in when you get all that footage that you can cut, but I really do believe there's only one film for you and you just have to work hard enough to find it. And I think that I approached the footage of this film in the same way it was originally written in a linear way. It started with Noah Jupe and it went a little Otis until that ended and then it went into the older Otis. And when we got into the editing room, we ended up editing it, you know, like with two timelines and actually opening on Otis. 
Um, and that's, I think, something that comes from documentary, that, that ability to sort of like throw everything that you've planned and, and just approach it every day as if it's like the first time you're looking at the film and, and seeing what works and what doesn't. And Boaz has seen so many cuts of this film when it was still linear, when it was, you know, it started with Noah, when it started with Lucas. It was just like so many variations of it. And then that kind of freedom, I think definitely it, it comes from documentary. Yeah, your freedom in the editing room. I, I would have a heart attack if I tried to <laughs> if I tried to do that. I was always amazed at how you're able to always revisit your film and be critical and interested by it. Amazing. Uh, one, one more question. So the question was, how, how did it feel to direct something and a person that was in the film to whom this was obviously such a personal story? I mean. You know, I've known Shia for a few years, like probably seven, eight years before we made this film. And I definitely didn't know all of him. And, you know, I've known a certain side of him. Um, neither do I know all of him now, but I've, I definitely know more. Um, and there was a lot of trust between us, at first at least. I think at certain times on set that trust would sort of break or he would worry that... You know, maybe um, maybe something isn't handled right. He was very concerned about his father being captured in a certain way, and that he does the the best job to 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 really capture who that man was for him. Um, and it was it was it was just sort of like providing a space for all of this shitstorm to happen, and like like this psycho magical exorcism uh, that is also cinema. Um, and, and, you know, accept, I guess, like, and work through the days that were more challenging or more triggering and then, you know, laugh and on, on the days that were funny and, and light and we had both and really surrounding ourselves with people that knew Shia and made him feel like it is a, it's, it's a family, you know, and we had, um, I hired a lot of people that worked on Even Stevens. The line producer that produced this film, David Grace, was the line producer on Even Stevens on the show. Uh, he knew Shia's father. He was on set when this was happening. Um, there were people from um, Transformers. There were people that worked with him on many, many films. So just creating an environment that made sense, you know, to tell such a personal story and that had a lot of love in it and that a lot of people came together and said, had had a personal connection to this story either like i mean it's it's really incredible how sometimes people are drawn to work on smaller films that don't suggest any big paycheck because they have something to do with the film like either they really you know love the filmmaker but i'm a first-time filmmaker so it wasn't that kind of thing uh where i have like some you know fanatic uh followers there really was a reason for every person that was on this set i mean it was up to you know um either people that really love Chaya or people that experience similar circumstances and wanted to tell that story. I'll never forget that our prop, the girl who was doing our props, her father was an alcoholic and a clown. And I was just like, my mind was blown. But it was I like... I imagine seven. most are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just like a combination of like making this personal for everybody. Well, you made... Definitely one of the most beautiful films thank I've seen you. in a long time, certainly this year. So thank you, thank you all. Thank you thanks so much. For coming, thanks everybody everyone. for coming. 
Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors James Mangold and Casey Lemons. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.